Hi, everyone. Welcome to our fifth talk of Europe after coronavirus, a series of podcasts promoted by Open EU Debate, a Jean Monnet sponsored network. My name is Carlos Carnicero Ravallen. I'm a journalist talking to you from Brussels. And today we'll be talking about how the corona crisis is impacting East and West divides in the European Union and the role the long-term EU budget and other tools can play to bridge this gap. I am virtually surrounded by three passionate European minds. Today's guest editor will be Ramona Coman, professor at the Université Libre de Bruxelles and the Institute for European Studies. Welcome, Ramona. Hello. Well, thank you. Uh, we also have joining us from Madrid, Carlos Closa, professor at the Institute for Public Goods and Policies, the SIC. Welcome, Carlos. Hello. How are you? Thank you very much for inviting me. Great. So, we have also Victor Negrescu, member of the European Parliament. Victor is part of the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats, and he's a member of the Committees on Budget and Culture and Education. Welcome, Victor. Hello. Nice to be here. Great. Uh, I want to ask all three of you a first thought on East-West divides in the European Union. It may, it may not be so obvious because we've been talking a lot about North and South divisions due to the COVID-19 crisis in the Eurozone. But Ramona, before we go into more details, would you like to introduce the discussion? Yes. Thank you very much, Carlos, and thank you, thank you for having me. So the COVID pandemic context, I think it is a critical juncture for EU integration. Big moments of uncertainty open windows of opportunity, uh, and in such moments, substantial change become possible. Now, the pandemic is already reshaping the political agenda at the European level. This is a new opportunity to think more seriously about green plans, economic growth models, and social solidarity. The new multi-annual financial framework and the recovery plan should be ambitious to support not only the objectives set before the beginning of the pandemic, such as the Green Europe, European Green Deal, topic on which Professor Closer wrote recently, but also the recovery phase, in which the capacity of each member state should be increased to deal with the socio-economic consequences of the COVID, topic that the members of the European Parliament and uh, Mr. Negrescu discussed the last two days. Now, the East-West gaps were already big before. The risk is to see them increasing and taking maybe new forms. Whether the crisis will broaden or reduce the gaps will depend on how we, EU institutions will design the new MFF and the recovery plan. The process is complex and the outcome are still uncertain. The lines of division between member states are strong. On the one hand, we see old lines of conflicts which are opposing those in favor of more or less integration or those opposing the net contributors to the EU budget to the friends of cohesion. And there is indeed a tension between the core and the periphery, which is generated by the lack of socioeconomic convergence across the continent. And on the other hand, we see also new lines of conflicts, conflicts over values, tensions over societal issues, such as religion, multiculturalism, family and gender, or over liberal democracy and the rule of law. So those conflicts, as our research conducted in the framework of Jean Monnet Network Open EU debate, seem to be more divisive than ever. Illiberal tendencies take root in some EU member states and they are inspiring also other leaders. So this is a serious challenge and the challenge is twofold. 
One is to close the socioeconomic gap and the tensions between the rich core and the peripheries. And the second one is to save democracy, which is dismantled in many EU member states. And there is an urgent need, I would say, to make sure that the EU resources are not used to strengthen authoritarian regimes within the EU. So those gaps have to be addressed together, I think. Thank you. Thank you, Ramona. I think this was a great start. You, talk, you touched on so many elements that are so relevant for to understand the divides between East and West. So maybe we can start talking about the, the economic divide, because it's been a uh, little more than 15 years since the so-called Big Bang enlargement uh, happened in the European Union, and there's still an economic gap between those two parts, those two blocks, if I may use that word. So, Victor, maybe maybe you can reflect on this gap and how this could play with the uh, crisis we are we are suffering at this at this moment. It is clear that uh, unfortunately at European level we have several divisions between East, West, and North and South. And of course, these divisions uh, need to let's say deal be dealt with uh, at European level. Of course, these divisions are today quite visible in the sense in which, of course, the approach towards uh, COVID-19 was to a certain extent also different among member states, but also different between re regions. Also, of course, we can look and see that very clearly in the impact that COVID-19 had across Europe. And we see slight differences, of course, between member states and also between regions. And of course, like you said very well, most probably those uh, realities are also going to be reflected on the economic impact that COVID-19 is going to have. In this regard, of course, we have a direct economic impact of the coronavirus, especially in the countries that, of course, faced the biggest medical impact, like Italy and Spain. But beside that, of course, we have an indirect economic impact because those countries, of course, are very much related economically with a lot of member states, a lot of which, of course, come from Eastern Europe. We can look, for instance, at the economic contacts between Italy and some Eastern European countries, and most probably the economic deficit and the economic problems that Italy is going to face is going, uh, are going to have a huge impact on some Eastern countries. Despite this fact, of course, the recovery plan that is currently debated also at European level needs to have a very integrated approach, enabling all member states, of course, to use common resources to get out of this, again, medical crisis, but also out of the potential economic crisis that is going to, uh, to happen. Beyond the difference or the gap between East-West, we have something that becomes more and more visible today, a difference of approach between Eurozone countries and non-Eurozone countries. Because for the time being, we have some solutions that appears, appeared at European level, especially for Eurozone countries, but those opportunities, those facilities, are unfortunately not available to the same extent to the non-Eurozone countries, most of them coming from Eastern Europe. So therefore, of course, uh, the biggest debate that is going to happen today is how we are going to get out of this crisis. And the European Union has tried to offer several solutions, giving more flexibility in the instruments available, some of which offer opportunities, but some of which generate gaps. And I'm going to mention just two of them. So the flexibility of the use of European funds enables, for instance, Eastern countries to access EU funds faster and, of course, use the EU funds in a useful way 
for the recovery solutions, but also in order to reduce the economic gaps between East-West. But there is a second element, which, which refers to the possibility to use uh, state aid. Uh, this is something that was not allowed in the past, was clearly uh, regulated by the European Commission, and here we see a huge gap. For the time being, more than half of the European state aid was given by Germany, followed by, uh, by France, and after that by Italy. Of course, the countries that have financial resources can give state aid. The countries that do not have financial resources, most of them coming from Eastern Europe, do not have enough resources to finance, of course, their companies and give state aid. This can, of course, become a subject of discussions and also a potential factor generating bigger gaps in the future. So at the end, just what I want to mention is that there are gaps existing and COVID-19 can be an opportunity to reduce those gaps if we develop common policies at European level. If we do not do that and if we leave things uh, according to the market rules, there is, a potential, uh, there is potential for bigger disparities in the future between East-West generating potential new conflicts in the European decision-making process. Carlos, uh, do you see a pattern in, in how uh, so-called Eastern members are reacting to this crisis and the more, uh, like the older members, are, if they are reacting in a different way and, and whether that fits into the uh, discussions we normally have about this divide? Hmm. I think one of the problems is that we are using a kind of uh, classification distinction, which is very much based on a fixed uh, stereotypes, so to say. And when it comes to specific issues, there are problems to really identify the, the trend there. So let me just raise the, the, the issue in the economic uh, divide. If you look at the, what is considered distant block, you have a strong difference internally because you have uh, the Baltic countries, which uh, not unsurprisingly belong, some of them belong to this new created Hanseatic League, which is very much in the line of... Uh, reducing contribution to the budget and opposes to those who are net beneficiaries of the budget. And that second group comprises countries in the South, but also in the East. So this shows that uh, the distinction between East and West does not hold really, really very well. There are certainly issues in which this emerges, but again, we may need we need to make some kind of uh, simplification. So if you look at uh, things like uh, democracy and rule of law, apparently they belong to the same kind of group of countries. But then if you look at, the, for instance, the rankings of uh, democracy and rule of law consolidation in certain countries, again, the Baltic countries, they score very, very high. So there may be some kind of uh, discursive construction of the Eastern Bloc, but then when you look at the details of how this is, has been constructed, there are internal differences. So my first point is that this distinction between East and West uh, perhaps is a simplification of a much complex, much more complex uh, reality. And we come to the question that you raised to me, the, how this role will perform the crisis. I think what we are going to see during the crisis is much more of an opposition between large and rich uh, member states versus the, the others. So what I can Emerge here is a bloc in one hand with uh, probably Germany, um, the Netherlands, and France pushing in, in one line, which in a way drinks for previous uh, 
previous proposal, like for instance, uh, don't, don't forget that France and uh, Germany were pushing strongly before the crisis for this idea of European industrial policy that allowed the creation of national champions. And in a way, the, the, what they are doing nowadays with these lines of uh, public subsidies and public helps to national companies fits in the same in the same kind of uh, line. And that clashes a little bit with the difficulties that other countries may have to support national industries during the crisis. So there is a, a distinction that, again, does not neatly fit the distinction between uh, East and West. And um, besides, the, the, the interest in certain sectors can be highly coincident. So I don't know, you have uh, read the recent uh, communication from the Polish government, for instance, about the use of the new uh, funds. And the Polish government was insisting very much on redistribution and helps to the agricultural sector. In a way, this resonates very much with things that can be raised in Spain or Italy. So there are lines that uh, question this strong division between East and West, at least in the in the economic uh, in the economic dimension. Naturally, in political terms, we can speak of something uh, some different articulation of interest, but in economic terms, uh, there are some uh, cracks in this uh, distinction is west thank you carlos because in, indeed when we talk about the east we, we we may we may use monolithic terms and in fact some are members of the eurozone some are members of schengen and uh, and there's there's great uh, diversity there so following what you were saying about rich and and, and less well off member states in the eastern bloc how this dynamic will play in the negotiations uh, that we will see for the MFF, the, the long-term EU budget, that now is so relevant because it's connected to the recovery fund and to, to the way in which we're going to solve or try to solve this uh, huge crisis. So, uh, Ramona, would you like to, to comment on that, on those economic dynamics in the, the negotiations that we may see about this MFF? What is for me important in this discussion is the debate about uh, own resources and new resources. We saw the conclusion of the last uh, European Council agreeing to increase the budget. This is uh, already a good news and there is indeed a political commitment, but the question is uh, the origin of this budget. So I think that the proposal which was made recently also by the European Parliament, and it is not a really new topic on having new own resources, is a very, very uh, good one. Uh, now we this we will see how and what is what will be the opinion and uh, the response and the reaction of the European Commission to this proposal and what will be also the reaction of member states uh, on on that. But I think that if we really want to have uh, original and really solutions to the problems of the COVID, but also to the gaps which were already before the crisis, uh, I think we need a uh, strong budget, an ambitious budget, and having own resources would be a a solution to that. Victor, what is your reaction to that, to, to new resources and, and what the, the, the novelties that we want to see in this long-term EU budget? Yeah, I'm very much supportive of uh, new resources. The European Parliament has uh, decided again to, to, to make a new call for own resources at European level. Of course, uh, which own resources? Because this is the biggest problem. It is not the acceptance of having resources at European level. That is a problem or a subject of, of debate is identifying the one that on which everyone has agrees on, upon because there are different perspectives. Uh, if we refer to digital tax or taxation on on pollution or, or other issues like that and alternatives of own resources, we see then uh, differences of approach between different countries also 
regional uh, differences in terms of approach. But it is clear that, of course, if we refer to the uh, upcoming budget, I think the topic, uh, uh, topics have changed uh, in these discussions. If before, we used to have a debate between whether or not to continue with the traditional policies or come up with, with new ones. So basically support the cohesion policy and agricultural policy versus other potential policies. Today, I think uh, the debate has shifted towards, uh, uh, let's say, those policies that can, can have the biggest impact, the biggest positive impact uh, in everyone's countries. So therefore, uh, very, uh, very, uh, a lot of the countries and, of course, of the EU decision makers are focused today on, for instance, healthcare policies or on initiatives that will enable us to help us meet the European level. So I think there is room for a compromise. This is why the European Commission has to come up with a new plan, with a new potential budget that has to be discussed intensively uh, with, with everyone, with member states, but also with the European Parliament. So therefore, of course, I expect in the upcoming months during the German presidency to have a positive outcome. Uh, the issue that still remains is whether or not we'll have a budget in time for next year. And here, sincerely, I'm, I'm really worried that this will not happen and we'll start the next budget quite late. And this will affect everyone, all the countries in the European Union. Carlos, I know you've been working on a proposal for new resources. And you've been talking about a green tax and a digital tax and how, how this plays a role now. I mean, this is not something new, but this is something urgent now with the recovery fund. And so maybe you can you can tell us about that. Yes, I, I would say a little bit about that. But uh, I mean, I am kind of uh, ashamed to speak uh, in front of uh, representative of the budget uh, committee from the European Parliament. Now, the, the, the whole discussion now is going to be framed in the two sides of the, the budget, the revenue and the expenditure. And uh, just to, f to say a few things about that. On the revenue side, it's very important that we are able to define new sources of income. And that was the line that we were pursuing with this proposal on the environmental taxation and digital taxation. For Because we, the, the, obvious, the reasons are fairly obvious. Uh, environment is a central concern nowadays, and the Green Pact put that on the very focus of European policy. And digital is one of the very few sectors that is really getting out very st strongly from, from uh, this crisis. So there is strong reasons for that. But moreover, the significant increase that are going to be needed for the budget uh, requires that if we don't uh, find new mechanisms for uh, funding, the whole, uh, the whole weight of this increase in the budget may go to what is called national contributions. And the national contribution is purely payment from the national budgets. And that will create huge, significant political tensions. It's something perhaps uh, we are not prepared right, right now to, to support in the European Union. So I think there is a very strong case to find ways to finance not only the budget, but this specific or the new recovery fund that go beyond existing uh, resources, precisely to avoid the political downside of uh, needing to use too much national contributions, which is really a, a source of political contest. And now it comes the second the second component of the budget, which is expenditure. And, and the game is going to be played simultaneously on the negotiation of the revenue, but also the expenditure. Now, here there will be a strong fight between governments, and of course the European Parliament will be involved, 
to frame and define what are the specific areas in which the expenditure has to be allocated with different labels. It's expected to be driven by social concerns. And uh, today was listening a very interesting talk by Timothy Gartonash doing research on the, on the public opinion European Union and showing by a large around 80% of the European citizens support the idea of a, some kind of universal basic income. So that puts a very important social issue on the agenda and framing the expenditure around those lines could but also have very different uh, redistributive effects for different countries. The second uh, the second label for framing the expenditure has a lot to do with, of course, with, with health, which is a very obvious thing. But I don't think that health will be a main, uh, main point for allocation of expenditure. Agriculture, third element, comes very strongly uh, next to the idea of uh, having a self-sustained uh, Life food structure in the in the in the European Union, and finally uh, research. Um, one thing that the crisis has proved is that the European Union needs to invest, and the member states need to invest much more money on the research in measures. So there will be a strong battle between national governments trying to frame how the expenditure will be allocated with this new recovery fund, but also with the increase uh, or. Ordinary, ordinary budget. And those two battles are going to be placed simultaneously, the battle on resources and the battle on the expenditure. And that will determine the structure of winners and losers that I wouldn't say that is necessarily predetermined by the geographical structure is West in the continent. We saw that there is support in the European Parliament for this, but the response of EU institutions should be immediate. So I, my question was, made, uh, the response should be uh, immediate of EU institutions to the problems and to increase the state capacity of EU member states. So, Victor, do you want to have a final thought on the budget before we move on? Maybe react to Ramona's point? Yeah, to, to what was said before. Uh, the issue of budget is even more complicated than that course is uh, where do we get the money and of course uh, we need to increase the allocation of member states to the budget because you know it's uh, the, the allocation is related to the GDP of each countries uh, and of course the GDP has declined for most of the countries due to the current context the second uh, issue is again how do we spend the money and of course whether or not we integrate those resources in the EU budget or we create external funds uh, like France has came up with this proposal of creating an external fund to for the recovery after COVID-19. So in my opinion, of course, most of Eastern European countries, this is not something that is being supported uh, by, again, uh, by us, or because we had this experience of uh, the Juncker's plan that was not uh, uh, allocated, uh, let's say, across Europe in a fair and equal way. So this is a big issue. Uh, a third element is, again, whether or not we give grants to countries or to companies to recover or we give loans like we decided uh, uh, till now and this is a big issue because some countries have a strong financial sectors others do not have that it's not the east-west divide but again the poorest countries in europe do not have a strong financial sector so they are struggling in using financial instruments to to recover from this and fourth and not least uh, this was mentioned in the previous intervention and i mentioned as well Healthcare can be a topic. It means, of course, investing in research, but also introducing healthcare as a program in the cohesion fund. Because, again, my view and my perspective is that decision makers at European level 
have recognized even publicly that they make mistakes at the beginning of the crisis. So they want to win back the citizen that they lost and the trust that they lost that is also perceived in, in the polls. And they can do that by showing that they are investing in healthcare and also by showing that the European Union is involved there. Of course, this is a topic among others, like mentioned before, agriculture, supporting SMEs and so forth. But I think this topic can become an important one, a topic that can unite if the right solutions are laid down. Moving on, let's consider how this pandemic and the unprecedented combination of a world health emergency and global lockdowns will affect key political and cultural fractures in Western and Eastern member states. Now, I remember when we used to say, well, when a country joins the European Union, this is a guarantee for progression of democracy. So there's no way back. Things are going to get better and better in terms of uh, open societies, in terms of democracy, in terms of rule of law. And now there are some developments in the last years that are contradiction, contradicting sorry, this assumption. So, Victor, do you see this crisis accelerating the so-called illiberal tendencies that we've seen in Poland, Hungary and elsewhere? I think, uh, again, this crisis raises a lot of issues in terms of uh, democracy and rule of law because most of our countries didn't have things very well defined in the legislation on how to deal with these urgency situations. And of course, the answers were different, and of course, some of which were going beyond the common European values, like in the countries that you just mentioned. This is why it's important for the opinion to show that it reacts when something like this is happening, follows this through and, of course, come up with solutions that could resolve the problems and the worries that already exist. What I have to mention, a particularity in Eastern Europe, is that uh, Eastern Europeans uh, really had huge expectations when it comes to Europe and what Europe was going to offer all of us. To a certain extent, those expectations were met. But at the same time, the expectations were so high that when disappointments appeared, the disappointment had even bigger impact. And they were used politically by illiberal parties not supporting the European Union or willing to use this type of rhetoric to win voters in. So this is why it's important, again, when it comes to dealing with let's say, Eastern Europeans, if we may say so, in communicating, let's say, in a proper way what can be done and what cannot be done at European level and showing that Europe has positive and negative aspects, but it's up. It's about working together in this regard. So, of course, um, I think that at European level, uh, we have to be stronger on, on protecting democracy and rule of law. Uh, the Commission didn't have a strong reaction in the last couple of weeks on what is happening. In the same time, we saw the European Parliament being more visible about it. Maybe this is the role of the European Parliament, but at the end, we can remind ourselves that uh, when we had, uh, let's say, uh, breaches of the rule of law, the Council couldn't reach an agreement and the Commission couldn't impose its voice. So there are huge problems and this may affect Europe in the future if there is no real solution for dealing with, with these issues at European level. So I think the question is whether the EU has the right tools to enforce democratic rule of law in all member states. 
uh, Ramona, do you want to react to do you want to react to that? Do we have uh, the right tools? Do we need other tools? I would say a few words and then I will leave the floor to Professor Closa. So in my view, the EU now compared with the situation in 2000s, like for example, the first one, the discussion about values was on the table of the EU institution in the case of Austria. So compared to that context, I think the European Union now has a variety of tools. And we have analyzed and observed this process uh, since 2010 with uh, new instruments to uh, safeguard the rule of law, with uh, a new framework which was used in the case of Poland, with infringement proceedings, with uh, the Article 7 which was triggered, uh, also EU justice scoreboard and so on and so forth. Now the European Commission will report on the rule of law and the state of the rule of law in all EU member states. So for me uh, there is uh, there are many tools, they are maybe with imperfections, uh, more than uh, maybe 20 years before, but even if there are so many tools, the results, when those tools are applied, the results, for example, are not there. We see that there is no progress uh, with regard to the state of, uh, with the state of uh, the rule of law and democracy in Hungary, and there are also problems in Poland and in many other EU uh, member states. So maybe the solution would be that uh, member states also act and speak up because the discussion now is also in the hands of uh, the member states in the Council and the European Council. So for me, it's not only a question of tools, it is indeed an important part of the discussion, but it is also a question of political will. But probably Carlos Closa would like to uh, add more to this uh, question. Carlos, the floor is yours. Go ahead. Uh, thank you. Uh, so let me just say that uh, Responding directly to the question whether the crisis has, uh, has activated or uh, accelerated illiberal trends, I would say to a certain extent because the trends were already there and certain governments were behaving already this way. So it's not much of a surprise. They just seized the opportunity. But also let us remember that uh, Commissioner Jurova, when scrutinizing the, the, the laws of the Hungarian uh, government, the Hungarian parliament, uh, to deal with the emergency situation, uh, said that there was not evidence of a breach of rule of law in the European Union. So this is a kind of uh, convalidation that responds to something which is very obvious that Hungary is playing very well, the, the, uh, the notebook of uh, European Union rules. And it complies formally, but in substance, it's a kind of uh, it's a, it's a significant Richer. So in a way, I wouldn't say there is, a, there is not much of a huge change, simply they are continuing the trends that they were there, uh, they were there in the past. Uh, going to, uh, uh, and in that respect, I, I would like to emphasize very much the role of the European Parliament. Uh, they, they are calling for a hearing on Hungary and rule of law on Hungary, and I think this is very positive. And uh, But the, the weak point for the European Parliament, and, and this is not so much of an institutional criticism as a kind of party criticism, is that parties, and one of them in particular, are very protective for the members of those parties uh, who are in government in these countries and uh, belong to the same family. And the EPP has been permanently under fire because it's uh, protecting Viktor Orban, has been protecting Viktor Orban in the last five years, and uh, not, mu not much has been, has been done about that. And there's a crucial element. Uh, I wouldn't say that this is the only element. It's a crucial element. If we protect uh, those uh, those behaviors at the European Union level, then there is very little expectation for efficient action. 
Now, going to the to the question whether the European Union has got instruments, I think here we face a very deep problem, which is what I have called in the past uh, the compliance dilemma. Uh, the European Union is a community of law, basically, and a community of law that relies for compliance in basically a setting that all states are bound by the law and they obey the law. Now, what this belief breaks and uh, breaches of the rule of law is breaking this belief, then there is very little left for obtaining compliance. We are going. To, we talk a lot about sanctions, about using funds, and so on and so forth. But there is no certainty that just by using sanctions you can obtain compliance. And this is a huge dilemma because there is nothing else beyond sanctions. There is nothing more. Uh, we don't have uh, force, uh, which is something that is used in, in in federal states. So if you want to put some kind of uh, similarity, let us remember that in the sixties, when in certain parts of the United States there were violations of human rights because of the racist behavior of certain states, the federal government was able to send uh, the National Guard uh, to protect uh, to protect basic constitutional values. The European Union cannot do that. So we have a dilemma. We only can obtain compliance if national authorities, at the end of the day, are prepared to comply. We don't have uh, enforcement mechanisms beyond sanctions. Carlos, what about the rule of law conditionality that some people have been talking about? Is that I know that's not sending guards to Bucharest, sorry to 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 Budapest, but uh, is that is that that would make a difference here or not? It would make a difference to the point uh, it's using the same kind of element in a, in a different way because it's financial sanctions, right? So conditionality at the end will mean financial sanctions, funds using funds. So my question is. Are we sure that funds are efficient? And if we look around the, uh, around the world, cases in which financial sanctions are used, like Cuba, like Iran, like North Korea, and so on and so forth, there is very little evidence that financial sanctions are mechanisms able to obtain change of behavior. Uh, so what we are proposing with conditionality assumes that people, the uh, rulers, will bow to those kind of uh, incentives. But we are not sure. And if we fail, there is nothing left. I'm not, by the way, I'm not suggesting not to use it. What I'm suggesting is that our toolkit is very, very thin because at the end, we don't have really the last enforcement mechanism, which is, and I know it sounds very strong in an international, in international group in the European Union, even, even though the nature of the European Union goes beyond that, the last mechanism for enforcement is, uh, is force, is uh, the use of military force, the use of police force. We don't have that. So that's a dilemma. How are we going to obtain compliance without having force? Victor, do you think uh, sanctions as a mechanism can work at some point? I think, uh, of course, uh, it's not only an issue of sanctions. Uh, it's an issue of uh, communication as well. Because, again, the European Union has repeatedly referred to what is happening in Hungary and Poland. And those political parties that are responsible for what is happening are still winning elections. So that means that we had difficulties in explaining to the population why things are not moving in the right direction for the citizens and why the European Union is reacting and our intention to protect those citizens and their rights. So I think it's, a, let's say, a mixture of elements that have to be conducted by the European Union in order to deal with this issue. And like... Uh, uh, it was mentioned before, it's also about being very clear at European level. Because if the Commission said something, the European Parliament says something, and the political uh, uh, 
the group to which those parties belong to, and their main political leaders are not reacting at all. This will be. This is again a, a big problem. We want to see Merkel reacting, Macron saying something. The most prominent and visible European leaders have to say something very clearly on this topic to really have an impact. Of course, by acting as well, if possible, but also by being sure that we are not losing the communication game because the liberal parties are very strong in in turning things around and and uh, again. Uh, uh, Painting what is being addressed at European level is something negative for them and for the citizens of, of their own countries. So we have to be very careful in dealing with this issue also in terms of speech, rhetoric and, and communication. Okay. Ramona, do you want to react to, to whether these, these tools are, are useful or whether we need others? Well, I agree with what was uh, said before. For me, uh, the question, as I said, is also a question of political will. It's a question of dialogue uh, between member states. It is We see uh, with some cases that the tools which are used don't really give re concrete results. On the contrary, we see that the state of democracy is uh, deteriorating in uh, many EU member states. It's a question, important question, and I remember that this debate about sanctions and uh, the effectiveness of sanctions is uh, an important uh, discussion in political science. We don't know. What I remember, for example, is back in maybe in 2000, it was the president of the European Commission at that time, Romano Prodi. He was having this kind of discussion saying that sanctioning member states for non-compliance is not a good political solution. So yes, sanctioning, no, maybe no. But on the other hand, there are important questions. Citizens are asking questions about the state of democracy and the fact that maybe EU money is financing or giving support to political actors who are not democratic political actors anymore. Carlos, um, Victor was saying something that is interesting in this conversation because some of those leaders that uh, we, are, we, are, we are referring to right now are extremely popular in their member states. So I wonder how this plays into the sanctioning, no sanctioning, and, and enforcing rule of law. I guess this is a challenge. Yeah, there is a there is a significant body of literature that speaks about this effect, which is uh, rally around the flag, meaning that if you sanction an autocrat, uh, the people in the country will feel somehow offended and will they will rush to, to around the leader, right? So it's a it's a simplification of the argument, but this has been a study in a number of cases, this kind of nationalistic uh, nationalistic uh, reaction. But uh, again, I will insist that uh, the, the, the real crunch of the argument is how to obtain compliance from national authorities. Under what conditions you can obtain compliance uh, from national authorities. And in that respect, I'm very, I'm very supportive of the idea of sanctions. And Ramona has said things which are very valid for that, which are not necessarily in the line of efficiency, in the line of why we should, in any case, impose sanctions. Because citizens want us to do something, want the European Union to do something, want to address certain things which are considered not uh, acceptable. That's totally true, and I buy that argument. But it doesn't mean the same as saying that they are going to be efficient, right? So we have a problem with, really, with obtaining obtaining compliance. And that makes me, me very skeptical on some of the solutions have been suggested in the past. For instance, one of them is uh, to make the European Court of Justice the arbiter of uh, rule of law breaches. And I'm very skeptical of that because that will convert the European Court of Justice in some kind of uh, meta-constitutional court. 
and having watched what happened in the, this week with the with the German Constitutional Court and the strong challenge to the authority of the Luxembourg Court, you could imagine what would be the situation if the European Court of Justice rules on a case of breaches of the rule of law, and then there is a challenge by national courts and national authorities on the authority of the European Court of Justice role. That will be a huge element of delegitimation and weakening of the whole system. So at the end, this dilemma is there and it's very difficult to, to resolve. Um, I am kind of skeptical about notions as dialogue. dialogue. Uh, we have seen that the Council has embarked for a number of years in a mechanism called precisely dialogue, has led nowhere, is very poor quality and just really a kind of uh, uh, talking shop without really any kind of uh, meaningful naming or shaming, which is the lowest level of of, of, uh, of sanctions. So I'm slightly skeptical about that. And that takes me, you allow me to make a, a reflection, which is, I think, becoming increasingly important in an in a area of uncertainty, which is the following. We have said uh, as a kind of maximum that the European Union does not expel members. But at a certain point, we have to reflect whether we want to belong to a union in which certain states can become not only autocratic, but go in the direction increasingly of certain totalitarianism. That will raise a case for perhaps, uh, in not spelling, perhaps finding mechanisms to freeze uh, membership of, of those uh, states. Because what is the stake, what is the stake here are really uh, important issues about how we conceive our union. Interesting, Carlos. I, I never heard before the concept of freezing member states as a midway between not expelling and not, uh, uh, hopefully, let me, and hopefully, let me, sorry, go. Let me just say that uh, legally is, is not feasible, but the thing is that we need to start to throw on the discussion this kind of notions just to make more credible other alternatives. Is legally not feasible, but we need to speak about that. Do we want to be in a union with a member state which is not democratic, which is fully authoritarian, which is going in the direction of authoritarian? Well, I think your, your your question is very appropriate because we are in times of definitely to think out of the box. This lockdown is, is posing so many challenges that we are becoming more and more creative. So hopefully we can think of uh, new ways of uh, of um, of convincing some member states to to uh, to follow more rule of law and democracy. But before we close, I, I, we don't have a lot of time. We have. I'm going to give you the floor for not even a minute each of you. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge. But I want to ask you if you could think of one single development that could help to bridge the gap between East and West. Uh, it could be more of an economic gap, cultural gap, political gap. If you could think of one development, one idea, Carlos already mentioned this idea of, of, of freezing uh, somehow a member state that is not complying. What would you choose? I want you to be creative and think of an idea that could help us to have a Europe more uh, less divided between the new members and the older members of the European Union. Who wants to play the game? I can start. Come on, Victor. I noticed also in my uh, previous experience as Minister for European Affairs in Romania, discussing with different decision makers at European level, that there is a concept that unites us, that is mentioned in the treaties, which is human dignity, which refers to identifying those policies that have a positive impact on citizens. And those policies, you know, are not already at uh, EU-level competencies, but there are something that 
seems to unite us. Policies on healthcare, on education, on social issues, those elements that can be implemented at European level that will reduce, let's say, the gaps in terms of living conditions, in, in terms of uh, standards, social standards, living standards, democratic standards, is basically identifying those policies that are positive and that, let's say, will increase the support for the European Union uh, across, uh, across the continent. I think this is something that can, uh, again, uh, uh, rebuild, let's say, connections between East-West. And this will uh, give everyone the feeling, even Eastern Europeans, that they belong to this project and they can influence this project. So therefore, all of that is related to something that has been announced, which is a debate about the future of Europe. If we want to be together, we have to think about the future of Europe. If we have a plan for the future, we will identify also the money for it. So this is, again, my proposal for what could be done. Thank you. Thank you, Victor. So new policies for the future of Europe. Very inspiring. Thank you. For me, it's a very difficult, uh, it's a difficult question, but what I would say is that the European Union is trying to reduce the gaps between member states since its creation, right? And we saw that there, uh, we observe good results and outcomes in some countries and in some contexts, but in the end, the results are mitigated because the gap is still there and there is a convergence, convergence of the East and South, and not on the uh, east with the north and south with the north, but the convergence between east and south. So it is maybe now the moment to redesign all the tools and policies and instruments which are in place and to take this moment as an opportunity. I know that there are many questions for political actors on the table, but maybe this is an opportunity to uh, rethink maybe how uh, the budget, EU budget uh, is, uh, is used. And for me, a last point would be also that in some EU member states, if not in all, all governments should take the question of solidarity at the domestic level also very, very seriously. Without solidarity, the union has no uh, future, I would say. No future without solidarity. I like that. Carlos, what's your final uh, final point before we close? Yeah, Let me just make a, a couple of things. First, I don't believe on revolutionary change. I think incremental changes are the best way to, to go forward. And then, uh, contrary to what I said before, incentives are very important in producing those changes. So if I can surrogate myself to interventions of both Victor and, uh, and Ramona, I will frame with this, within this idea of uh, solidarity, but also of uh, policies that can engage, uh, uh, can bring some results for, uh, for the people, for the concrete citizens. I will address to a proposal that I've written, and I think was published by you, Carlos, which is this idea of creating um, a kind of uh, European level uh, health system that is based on uh, scrutinizing the quality of the national health services and attaching money to certain, to obtaining certain conditions. So there will be a clear relation between the level that we want to attain, money coming from the European Union, but also performing at the domestic level, an important job, an important role in transforming our national health services. So this is a very small example. I have written about that, so you can find the proposal, that coaches this idea of solidarity and also having policies for the people which are brought about by European Union money. And that will be an incremental change. I wouldn't put a lot of um, expectations how how significant this is going to be alone and how quick this can work, but certainly goes in the, in the right direction.
no one could deny that this is a good step. It goes in the right direction indeed. And I think it's a good way to, to finish this conversation. I want to thank all of you. I think this was very insightful. We learned quite a lot on the dimensions affecting East and West divides in the EU and how this pandemic could hopefully help bridge those divisions. So Ramona, Victor, Carlos, thank you for your contribution. Please stay safe and healthy. Thank you for the invitation and for the very, this very good discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for the discussion. I hope this is, will be useful for the ones uh, listening out to our podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Thank you, three. This was all for now. Europe After Corona is a series of podcasts promoted by Open EU Debate and produced by Agenda Publica. We will continue this conversation very soon because, yes, these lockdown days are finally coming to an end and we need to be ready with answers on the post-corona world that is emerging. Stay tuned.